0: If you have a Bible, would you turn with me to Daniel chapter 3, and we're going to read that story um, as we continue in our uh, series on the book of Daniel. We're going to read that story that uh, I I told the the kids about just a minute ago. So if you would, um, would you stand with me as we read Daniel chapter 3? You can uh, find it on page 740 in uh, the Blue Bibles near you. For the sake of uh, just time, we're going to start at verse 14. At the beginning of this chapter, Nebuchadnezzar, the uh, cruel, tyrant, dictator, has set up a golden statue, and he said that everybody, whenever they hear the music play, that they, uh, they have to bow down and worship before the statue. And we read this in Daniel 3, verse 14 and following. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now, if you are ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, to fall down and worship the image that I have made, well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace." And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. and the satraps, the prefects, the governors, and the king's counselors gathered together and saw that the fire had not, uh, had not had any power over the bodies of those men. The hair of their heads was not singed, their cloaks were not harmed, and no smell of fire had come upon them. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants, who trusted in him and set aside the king's command, and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own god. Therefore, I make a decree. Any people, nation, or language that speaks anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb, and their houses laid in ruins. For there is no other God who is able to rescue in this way. This is God's word. Will you pray with me? Father, we pray that you would give us insight into your word, that we would hear your voice by the power of your spirit, in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated, please. Well, I want to start by asking you a question. The question is this, how do you define the good life? Every one of us, I'm convinced, has a, a dream or a hope or a picture in our minds of what uh, the good life looks like? We might not use, we probably don't use those words, um, but what will it look like when life finally all kind of comes together and we have arrived and we are satisfied and we are happy? Uh, for some of us, um, I have a friend who talks about the backyard dream and he says, you know, the backyard dream is is uh, you go out to your backyard, you've got a cold beverage, you, t- you, have, you sit down and you're patio furniture and you just kind of survey your domain and it is good and you are happy and you are satisfied and you are at peace um, some of us you know uh, this idea of like are, are having the perfect house it's like yes that's when I will know that everything is finally right with the world for some of us it's the perfect family vacation you know maybe you had this moment in your in your past where it was like yeah that was the time when everything was just, so peaceful and wonderful. For some of us, it's our careers, right? And uh, we we think that you know, our if if uh, our our lives will be meaningful if our work is meaningful, and we just kind of move from height to heights, and work is going well, and we're being recognized, and we're being promoted, and we're advancing, and of course we're making enough money. Then we're living the good life. For some of us, I think our our um, our picture of the good life comes out. When we're driving, I don't know if this has ever happened to you. It's mostly a picture of the good life being taken away because my picture of the good life is nobody gets in my way when I'm driving. And we can be driving along and in the middle of a perfectly calm, nice conversation when all of a sudden I'm just livid and my wife is wondering what in the world just happened. Because some, you know, driver has cut me off and the good life has been ripped from my hands. Um, whatever it is, each of us has a picture in our minds of what the good life looks like. And yet, and I mentioned this last week. I think we're at a time um, in our in our country and in our culture where um, something has shifted. Something is different than it used to be, and um, we might have different all kinds of varying explanations for why that is. But I don't think that there's any denying the fact that in the last, I don't know. Doesn't even matter what the time frame is. Something has changed. Um, something has changed in our culture, and here's what I think has changed. I think that most of us grew up thinking that, you know, if we work hard, if we go to college, if we don't make that many bad decisions in college, um, if we if we get a good job, if we settle down and get married and have kids, that the good life will sort of naturally follow. And uh, I can remember, um, I think it was actually in a conversation I had with my father-in-law-to-be when I was asking his permission to, to uh, propose to his daughter. Um, I remember him saying to me, you know, I remember when I graduated college thinking if, if I ever make $10,000 a year, you know, that's like, I will be just set for life. Um, right that was just kind of the idea of like oh the good life if we just if we could just get there then everything would be would be great and I think the thing that has shifted in our culture is this that um, we are no longer as optimistic that if we make the right choices if we work hard that the good life will just naturally and inevitably follow um, let's be honest most of us live here most of us live where we live because uh, we've made the right choices. We've worked hard. Uh, you know, we've uh, we've gotten married. We're settling down. We're thinking about kids. We have kids. We're, we've got tons of kids. <laughs> and yet it just doesn't feel like it's all lining up, maybe. And I think the thing that has shifted in our culture is that that optimism of, This is inevitable. Um, Good things will always follow if you do the right thing. I think that we are less optimistic about that than we used to be. And so the question then becomes this, what do you do when your path to the good life is blocked? When your hope or your dream or that thing you think will make you happy and satisfied? I mean, we're not unreasonable, it doesn't have to be perfect, but you know, just a reasonable amount of comfort and ease What do you do when your path to that is blocked? Well, typically what happens is uh, is these problem emotions begin to arise, right? Worry and anxiety and frustration and anger, um, stress. Last week, we started this series on the book of Daniel. This is my father's world. And I think the book of Daniel is the perfect you know, place in the Bible to look for this moment that we are in as a culture. Because um, the book of Daniel is the story of really uh, Daniel, but also these three men, that um, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego that we're looking at today. And it's the story of these four Jewish, they're boys at, at the beginning of the story, and the good life is ripped out of their hands and they are, uh, Israel is conquered by a foreign nation and they are, they are taken as prisoners of war, of captives and exiles, and they're taken 700 miles away to live in Babylon, in the pagan capital city of Babylon, which is in modern day Iraq. And um, they are kind of put into this system of, of indoctrination, of education, under, uh, under the pagan dictator Nebuchadnezzar, and they're given an education, and they're sort of wooed into assimilation. Or that's the, that's the goal, at least. And the question that comes up, the, the, the book of Daniel poses to us, is this, what does it look like to remain faithful to God when your dream of the good life is ripped away? What does it look like to be faithful to God, to remain faithful to God when your vision of what the future ought to look like for you is blocked? And here's what we see in this passage. What I think this passage kind of brings to the front for us is is this, that that we want to avoid pain and suffering, right? I mean, we just, we don't even want to see it. We certainly don't want to experience it. We don't really want to be around people that are experiencing pain and suffering. Um, and we are surprised when it happens to us. And so, because we're surprised, when pain and suffering enter our lives, we respond with worry, with anxiety, with frustration because our path to the good life has been blocked. And what the book of Daniel shows us is that God intends to protect his people through suffering. That God intends to use hardship in our lives to refine us. Nebuchadnezzar says, sets up a golden statue and he commands. He's got like a little praise band, an orchestra that he hires, like every instrument. There's even bagpipes in there. Um, And when the band starts to play, everybody who's there has got to bow down and worship at the foot of this statue. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego say, you know, we came into exile without a fuss. We've received this program of indoctrination. They're now working as... um, you know they're working in the royal court. They're adva- they're working to advance the uh, the rule of Babylon. Um, they say we'll go along with all of this, but we will not worship a false god. We will not worship your false gods. And Nebuchadnezzar is, um, you know, he's he's. You can tell just from this passage, like he's he's an unhinged individual. And um, Nebuchadnezzar, it, what he's doing, I think, in, in setting up this statue is, is what he's saying is. He's not saying, um, you must worship my gods instead of your god. What he's saying is, you must worship my gods in addition to your gods. You can do whatever you want in the privacy of your own home. But here, in public, when the music plays, you've got to bow down. Now, I don't know if that sounds familiar to you, but it should. Because that is pluralism and secularism. But these Jewish men won't do it. And uh, what does Nebuchadnezzar do? Well, he does what any well-balanced dictator would do. He, he heats up the furnace, <laughs> and it says a heat, his rage burns, and he, he heats up this furnace seven times hotter than it typically is heated, and he throws these men in there. And there is so much in this passage that I would love to draw out, but we've only got, uh, you know, limited time this morning. And so I, I just want to focus in on these key words that I feel like have just been haunting me all week for the last couple of weeks as I've been looking at this passage. And um, these words in verses 16, 17, and 18... Um, the words of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They say to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. Now, those are words that have almost never come out of my mouth. I don't need to defend myself. We don't need to defend ourselves. They say, if this be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace. And he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not... Be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image that you have set up. We believe that God can save us. And we believe that he will save us. But even if he doesn't, we're still not going to bow down. But even if he doesn't, those are the words that just keep ringing in my head. Um, You know, as Americans, we have a very strange relationship with suffering. I'm not assuming everybody in the war room is an American, but uh, most of us are, we all live in America, I think. Um, And we have a very strange relationship with suffering because relatively speaking, we don't suffer. I'm not saying that, that, you know, I mean, people get sick, um, you know, there's plenty of suffering to go around, but compared to the rest of the world, we suffer relatively little and yet we are we are the only people that are surprised when suffering enters our lives we are so not acquainted with suffering that when it enters our life we're like where did this come from what did i didn't do anything to deserve this why did this happen to me and we complain and shadrach meshach and abednego go into the fart furnace without fear stress or anxiety how is it possible that they can face um You know, imminent death without worry, stress, or anxiety, well, I think that they know two things that we don 't know, and um, the first thing that they know is that the good life lies not in the things that God can give us, but in God himself. They know that that 's why they can say, even if he doesn 't save us, we are still not going to worship false gods because they know that God can save them but even if he doesn't the good life is getting God not getting the things that he offers to us the heidelberg catechism is a uh, a, a catechism is like a set of questions and answers that's designed initially to to help children understand what the bible teaches and the heidelberg catechism is a summary of what the bible teaches that was written in the 16th century and it's so warm and rich and the first question of the Heidelberg Catechism is what is your only comfort in life and in death? Yeah, how would you answer that question? <laughs> that I won! What is your only comfort in life and in death? It says, that I am not my own, but I belong with body and soul, both in life and in death, to my faithful Savior Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from all the power of the devil. He also preserves me in such a way that without the will of my Heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head. Indeed, all things must work together for my salvation. Therefore, His Holy Spirit, by His Holy Spirit, He also assures me of eternal life and makes me heartily willing and ready from now on to live for Him. Isn't that beautiful? What is your comforts? Is your comfort found in the things that God can do for you, or is it found in God himself? But the second thing I think that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego know that we don't know um, is, is I actually think that there's a sense in which we all know this deep down. We just don't really want to admit it. And it's this, that while God can, and while God sometimes does save us from suffering, that he will always save us through suffering. That he will always rescue us through suffering. He will always use the furnace of suffering to refine us, to strip away the imperfections in our lives, and to purify us. Um, We just know that this is true, right? You don't really know what you're made of until you're put to the test. I'm pretty sure I heard some college football announcers say something to that extent yesterday. Right, We don't really know what Clemson is worth or is, you know, is made of until they are put to the test. Let's not talk about that later. Okay, I don't care that much about college football. <laughs> in general, Utah football maybe too much. Um, you don't really know what, you, what you're made of until you've been put to the test. But more than that, um, God is present with us in our sufferings. He puts us through suffering because we don't know what we're made from until we're tested. But more than that, he is with us in the midst of our suffering. Nebuchadnezzar sees four men in the furnace. And he says, and the appearance of the fourth is like the God. So the word is Elohim, which is usually just translated God in the Old Testament. His appearance is like the Son of God. Right? Jesus The pre-incarnate Christ is present with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the furnace. He doesn't send his people to suffer alone, but he is with us when we suffer, when we are refined in the furnace of suffering. But then he goes even further, and this is amazing if you think about... uh, I mean, literally, when you think about Nebuchadnezzar, you should really think about Saddam Hussein or, uh, you know, I mean, just evil, brutal... Uh, tyrannical dictators, Um, and this is what this pagan king says in verse 29, he says, For there is no other God who is able to rescue in this way. Now, I think it's hilarious that he says, and now having discovered that if you don't worship the same God, I'm going to tear you limb from limb. (laughs) It's like, I think you might have missed the point a little bit there in Nebuchadnezzar. (laughs) But but think, listen to what he says. No other God is able to save in this way. Now, he doesn't say no other God is able to save, does he? He says no other God is able to save in this way. Um, your, the God of your work is able to save you as long as you make regular sacrifices to it. If you sacrifice everything else in your life, work will save you. You just won't have a life. Um... Or the God of comfort can save, as long as you drive a new car Um, but as soon as you get that first scratch in the paint, you know, it's all over, right? No other God is able to rescue in this way. No other God is able to rescue through suffering. No other God is able to rescue us through suffering. We have a God whose salvation is not dependent upon our own efforts, our own merits, our own obedience. But who himself suffers in order to save his people. And of course we see that most perfectly in Jesus on the cross. The night before he goes to the cross in the Garden of Gethsemane. It's as if the door of the furnace is opening and Jesus is sweating, and he's saying, Father, if there's any other way, take this. Let's let's not do I don't want to suffer like this. But not your will, but my will be done. And so he goes to the cross and he suffers in our place so that we will never suffer alone. God intends to use suffering in our lives to purify us until the time that we are finally ready to enter into the good life, to enjoy being with him. I have a friend who's a pastor in another part of the country. He told a story about a young man in his his ministry who... um, he said, this, you know, this is just kind of like the all-American kid. He's good-looking. He's well-spoken. He's a standout athlete. He's kind of like the superstar Christian, leads all, leads all these Bible studies sort of a thing. And this this young man gets Hodgkin's lymphoma, a form of cancer. And he has to, um, he has to have, undergo chemo, and he loses his hair, and he loses his energy, and then his girlfriend breaks up with him, and he said, he's, um, he's in the hospital and he has no energy. He wakes up in the middle of the night. He has to go to the bathroom and he makes it to the bathroom and, and he collapses on the floor, just sapped of energy, collapses on the floor in the hospital bathroom. And he says, there I was lying on a linoleum floor in a hospital bathroom, unable to move, hospital gown hanging open, and I finally realized what grace is. He said, I couldn't do anything for God. I'm completely helpless. I haven't felt like praying. I'm not leading any Bible studies. I can't do anything for anybody, but I still have God's love. And if you talk to that young man today, he would say, I love Hodgkins. He said it was terrible, but it taught me who my Savior really is. He's saying the good life... Life is still really good. It's just that the goodness looked really different than I was expecting it to look. Do you know who your Savior is? i got to be honest with you guys. I have been, um... I feel like, um... I've said this sometimes partly in, 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 in jest, but I feel like for the last year and a half, I've been running on stress and caffeine and, um... And, I've, and there's been this like low-level anxiety just built in, in my life. It's not that any day is that hard. It's that it's constant, constant, constant worry and stress and anxiety. And I was talking with somebody recently who said, uh, well, have you type, tried praying about that? I'm like, yeah, thanks. I know. I'm a pastor. <laughs> the, the old prayer answer, Right. And he said, write down on a note card the things that you're anxious about. And uh, and I wrote like you know three or four things down. And he said, now pray about those things and they're God's problem. And I'll encourage you to do that too. They're God's problem to deal with. And whenever they come up in your life, in your day, stop and pray. And as I've begun to do that this week, what I've realized is that worry is actually a form of prayer. Worry is a form of secular prayer. When I worry, I'm praying to myself. But that in true prayer, um, my circumstances don't necessarily change. But I learn how to trust in the God who is able to save And I learned that no other God saves in the way that he saves. Will you pray with me? God, I thank you that there is no other God like you. And that God, on the surface, thinking about that you're going to refine us through suffering. Um, It doesn't sound appealing. It might sound cliche. It sounds like something that deep down we all know to be true. And yet, God, I hope that in these um, few moments that we have begun to see that maybe the good life looks different than we thought. That it's not having all the things that when we were 18 we thought would make us happy but that you give us something even better than we would have asked for, that you give us yourself. And God, I pray in my life and in our lives that you would do whatever you have to do in order to convince us that what we really need is you, that we might be able to say with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego that we believe, we know God is able to save us and we believe that he will. But even if he doesn't, we are not going to worship the idols of our culture that would enslave us. That we don't need them to be satisfied because we have you. God, would you do that in us? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.